Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I think one of the reasons why I'm so into it is I love beauty products. You care about what goes on your skin. You care about ingredients. I've always been obsessed with beauty products. I spend a lot of money on them. I spend a lot of time researching them. With 13% niacinamide, glycolic acid, and peeling actives. And I'm fascinated by claims too you you see claims by beauty products saying you know miracle ingredient wow. i saw results in one week it really made me feel and look a lot younger it absolutely works i guess i'm just interested in the prospect of whether there are some other miracle ingredients out there kyora no mai harumai kito tatau au hurihuri hello and welcome to our changing world ko clerk and ganan dene today two stories of research into chemicals that can help or harm later we'll speak to somebody investigating the dangers of a particular synthetic cannabinoid but first erin griffey is an associate professor of art history at the university of auckland her work has taken her from renaissance history to modern day chemistry so a few years ago now i started work on a new book on beauty culture in the renaissance and as part of that research I started mining beauty recipes from the Renaissance, essentially a whole range of cosmetic recipes, skincare recipes, and created a database. Very quickly, she saw that the goals of these Renaissance recipes were much the same as those advertised today, wanting to smooth our skin, remove blemishes, brighten our skin, and do things like remove wrinkles. The same kind of marketing that promotes these marvelous transformations that we see today it is not new you absolutely find it in the renaissance and they will say if you use this product you will look in the mirror and you will marvel erin is part of the beautiful chemistry project a study of popular renaissance cosmetic recipes using chemical analysis and functional testing the goal is to look for that miracle ingredient or to be more precise the effective combination of chemical compounds then there was borneol this increases the skin's membrane's permeability so putting that in will increase the transfer of chemicals into the skin so this is naturally in 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 this extract dr michel newwart is a physical chemist and a senior research fellow at the school of chemical sciences and she's helping to do some detailed analysis to see what kind of compounds they are finding in these old recipes Um and then it had also terpineol in it which is also found in tea tree oil and so this is an antioxidant it's an anti-cancer anti-ulcer and anti-hypertensive so this would be a medication site but this was in the extract as well so all of these are present in these elderenaissance recipes which was fascinating for us to find The project stemmed from Erin's database of European Renaissance beauty recipes, which now has thousands of entries. In the Renaissance, cosmetics were essentially the domain of learned physicians. And so as part of medical treatises, compendia of medical recipes, you'll find a section of recipes 
on cosmetics. You also find them in health regimens. These are rules on how to live a healthy life and prolong your life. You'll find them in herbals. They'll talk about the cosmetic properties of a range of plant ingredients. There are also compilations purely of cosmetic recipes. Back in 2019, Erin was asked to give a public talk about her work on beauty culture. And she decided that it might be neat to make up some of the products to show those who came along. So her friend Professor Kathy Simpson linked her up with postdoctoral researcher Dr. Ruth Sink, who could help her recreate some of the recipes in the lab. And so we brought in this little mannequin with real hair so people could see how the hair curler that purported to curl the hair really did. And um, we brought in the creams and other little unctions so that members of the public could, could try them. So that's really what set it all off. And really since then, we haven't really looked back, but we've been certainly scaling it up. And we now have a much bigger team involved and we're being far more systematic in terms of the, the individual recipes we choose, we're going much, much deeper and the rigor and depth of scientific analysis now that's focusing on these recipes. From there, Michelle got involved and supervised two summer students to start some of this more rigorous investigation of the recipes and their products. With thousands of recipes in the database, they decided to start with the ones that did the 15th century equivalent of going viral. We conclude, perhaps naturally, if we're finding a recipe in 25 different sources from a range of different practitioners across all of Europe over a 200-year period, something's sticky about this recipe. Can you give me a sense of these recipes? Are we talking about a wide range of different ingredients? Are, Are some things dangerous? Or something's really common? Everything you can imagine that could be used in a cosmetic was used. Anything, everything, in your wildest imagination. There are certain ingredients that are availed again and again, and these are patterns we've been able to discern through the database. And yes, you do find ingredients that we know today to be very dangerous upon application to the skin, like lead, mercury, vitriol. Vitriol is an old name for sulfuric acid, which I would definitely not recommend putting anywhere near your face. But they were also keenly aware of the dangers of those ingredients. And I think there's a perception that in the Renaissance, they just simply did not know the dangers. Not only did they know the dangers, they were very explicit about those dangers in their books. And they they were very clear warnings to people. The first recipe they tackled was one of these sticky ones, with an ingredient that popped up time and time again. Rosemary. Piglia un fior di rosmarino e fallo bollire con vino bianco. Take rosemary flour and boil them with white wine. E di quello lavati il viso molto bene e ancora bevine. And with that, wash your face very well. And also drink it. It will make your face very beautiful and the bread good. So we got some good Gewurztraminer, good quality Gewurztraminer wine. And Erin collected basketfuls of rosemary flowers. And so we gave the students these rosemary flowers and the Gewurztraminer wine and said, here is the um, Renaissance recipe. Follow it and see how this works and see what you come up with. 
But as Erin explains, the summer student's task was a bit more complicated than this. We gave her about 15 different iterations of the recipe from all over Europe across a 200-year period so that she could look at different, you know, variations and differences. Like, for example, one recipe asked to use rosemary leaves rather than rosemary flowers. So, for example, when in the lab we looked at the difference in the compound you might produce between the leaves and the flowers. One recipe specified sweet white wine. Other recipes did not specify the type of wine. So we wanted to give them the sense of the range of the recipes. So sounds a bit different to your normal chemistry experiment then, Michelle, because you've got this, instead of a very strict protocol written out, you know, 15 milliliters boil it at this temperature for this many minutes, you've got a kind of vague list with many iterations. How do you go about then analysing that to see what the outcome is? The recipe is vague, and so this is why, particularly why we charged the student, and her name was Shan Lan, she was excellent. Try various methods, whether you boil it for X amount of time, do you just steep them in, in a bit of hot wine, do you put the heat up the wine first and then throw the flowers in, or do you put everything into the wine and then boil it up, how long do you boil it for? And so she tried variations of this. And then she would filter out the, the flowers, and with the filtrate, then you'd cool it down, and then we'd analyse the filtrate using chemical analysis methods. And one of them was gas chromatography with a mass spectrometry detection. And this allows you basically to pull out all of the essential oils, which is mostly what we're extracting, out of both the wine and out of the rosemary flowers and analyse what essential oils or what alcohols or whatever compounds are in there. Which is how she's got that list of chemical compounds. And then there's one more which I'm going to mention is bornyl acetate. And this is an antioxidant. And interestingly, it was used as a skin whitening agent. And it's a stimulant for the skin as well. It gets blood circulation going. Yeah, so they were onto something. Oh yeah, big time. (laughs) And that's why it probably prevailed for hundreds and hundreds of years because something was working. And these chemical compounds that you've listed there today are found in moisturisers, in creams and all different things that we use today? They must be because you can find this information of, of what these actually do in skincare and why they're put in. What I find fascinating is that people will say, okay, this is an active ingredient, we'll make this stuff, we'll synthesise it or extract it from a natural Um, plant and we'll put it into a particular skin cream but we don't know about whether these work in synergy with others and the relative amounts of each Um, if you put perhaps too much can maybe not be so good for your skin so it might be that this particular relative amounts of these compounds and the fact that there are all these compounds together are just beneficial for for skin Maybe they found something that we don't know. But this is what we find so fascinating. It's so fascinating. And I'll say the rosemary flowers in white wine as a prescription to make you beautiful, to make the skin fair. I've found examples going back to medieval times. Have you tried the rosemary in white wine recipe yourself? I have indeed. And it gives your skin... A lovely texture, but it's not overly drying. It's not a moisturizer. And in fact, it was only through us 
actually applying this to our skin and analyzing, doing the skin analysis in the lab, they, they called it a beautifying water. But essentially, the impact it had on, on the skin, we think, is probably most analogous to a product today like a toner. Is that right? Yes. Uh, actually, a toner combined with a moisturizer in a way because it's also a humectant. So what we did is we used a trans-epidermal water loss meter and we had some volunteers and we had fancy creams and then we also had our rosemary flower extract. And so we would apply this each of these to the skin and then we would measure the hydration of the skin but before applying it and then after to the same spot. And what we found is that the water loss after applying this was less. So it sort of kept the, the water inside the skin. And actually, Michelle's day job in research includes using spectroscopy to analyse skin. So she is interested in how these different products might improve skin tissue. The project has gained a bit of steam, the team has grown, and they are excited about what comes next. They've already chosen what next to focus on. A recipe for a face mask made from deer velvet. They would shave the deer velvet into little pieces. They would boil it and they would collect the fat on the top. And then they would mix that with ground up bean flour. And that makes little kind of balls. And they would dry these. And then they would mix this with sweet water when they wanted to use it and make a paste. And they'd put that on their skin overnight. And this would make them beautiful. So we're analysing that recipe too to see what's in this. Why would they do this and why would they use deer velvet? Who knows? What they find out might just be the next miraculous beauty ingredient. That elusive secret to youthful skin that it seems we've been searching for since way back when. Thanks to Associate Professor Aaron Griffey and Senior Research Fellow Dr. Michel Nivoit of the University of Auckland. Thanks also to Samuel Bettinelli for providing a genuine Italian accent. Of course, many of the beauty products we have today already travel this path. Discovery of effective compounds found in nature, which then are remade or sometimes improved upon in the lab. And this is the same pathway for many of our medicines too. For example, the origins of aspirin go back to more than 3,500 years ago in the use of willow bark as a painkiller. But our next story is about what can happen when this goal of improving on natural compounds doesn't work out. And the information falls into the wrong hands. In no way are synthetic cannabinoids synonymous with cannabis plant extract. Lucy Thompson, toxicology PhD student at the University of Otago, wants to make one thing clear about the synthetic cannabinoid compound she is studying. AMB Fubinaca is... 80 times stronger than delta-9-THC, which was that main psychoactive compound in the cannabis plant. So 80 times stronger than the main compound in natural cannabis, which is a huge difference, and that's probably the biggest sort of public service announcement to get out there, is that these compounds are, are no joke. They're really something that's dangerous to society. AMB Fubinaca is the name of the particular synthetic cannabinoid Lucy studies. I'm going to guess many of you already know about the natural cannabis plant, and some might be familiar with synthetic cannabinoids. They have a bit of a sordid history in Aotearoa, New Zealand. While cannabinoids that we generally see come from those cannabis plants, synthetic cannabinoids are made in labs to ideally mimic those effects. 
but they've kind of taken on a life of their own and are now kind of designer drugs within the illicit drug market. So the term cannabinoid refers to compounds found in the cannabis plant that activate cannabinoid receptors in our bodies. There are over 100 different cannabinoids, but most of the research into cannabis focuses on the effects of two of them, THC and CBD. There's the cannabinoid 1 receptor, which is mostly in the brain, and that's the receptor that upon activation is responsible for the psychoactive effects of cannabinoids that we commonly associate with someone who's taken cannabis. And then there's the CB2 receptor, the second cannabinoid receptor, that's mostly found in the peripheral, um, so not in the brain. For the most part, it's in immune cells. So a lot of people have looked at cannabinoids that target the CB2 receptor for um, inflammation and diseases like that, rheumatoid arthritis. A lot of that is in the early research stages. But uh, lots of people would have heard of cannabidiol, CBD, Um, which is the second most common cannabinoid in the cannabis plant after delta-9 THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. And where delta-9 THC is primarily involved in activating CB1 and causing those psychoactive effects, it's thought that cannabidiol CBD has a higher affinity for the CB2, cannabinoid 2 receptor. So a lot of pharmaceutical companies and even like natural product Extract companies and things like that have been coming up with CBD products, especially in countries where cannabis is legal. Lucy says that we actually produce two cannabinoids in our bodies. They seem to play roles in pain and inflammation responses. So that's why we have those receptors in our body in the first place. And it was actually our discovery of the compounds in the cannabis plant that helped us isolate the cannabinoid receptors in our body and understand our own endocannabinoid system. So cannabinoids are not foreign to anyone because we have two circulating endogenous cannabinoids within our body. So you've got this system of receptors in our bodies and when they're activated, you get different, potentially helpful effects. Seems like an interesting thing to investigate. So initially research was done in the early 2000s um, where they synthesized a bunch of compounds that were targeted at medicinal use rather than just the straight extracts of the cannabis plant genus. The idea was that they were making these synthetic cannabinoids to be used as medicines. And it was a good idea. Today, there are synthetic cannabinoid medicines that have successfully gone through clinical trials and are now approved for use in certain countries. Dronabinol and Nabilone are synthetic versions of THC that are approved for use in the US for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and as an additive therapy for some types of pain. Dronabinol is also used as an appetite stimulant. However, some people had other ideas. Well, the first few synthetic cannabinoids that were discovered on the illicit drug market were patented by Pfizer. So that information was actually out there in the public. And it actually started a whole debate on whether we should make new chemical compounds that have been synthesized for medicinal research purposes available to the public or how that whole process works. But they were obviously exploited for that purpose and they're able to be produced by people with some some chemical knowledge in different countries around the world. So that's kind of how it came about. And then once you have most of the core chemical structures, you can 
modify them to make different ones relatively easily, and that's why they've become over 250 synthetic cannabinoids um, that have been identified worldwide since that mid-2000s. And for a time, you could find some of these easily in New Zealand. So synthetic cannabinoids were legal highs in the early 2010s until 2014 with the amendment to the Psychoactive Substances Act, um, which then meant that they were no longer legal. And back in the early 2010s, this is when you could buy synthetic cannabinoids from local dairies, which was obviously very dangerous looking back on it. But a lot of the synthetic cannabinoids that were around then were of the earlier generations that weren't quite as potent as the ones we're seeing now. But there's obviously still a reason that we amended the Psychoactive Substances Act and therefore made these these products illegal. So the particular synthetic cannabinoid that Lucy is studying is called AMB Fubinaca. It is now Class A controlled in Aotearoa, New Zealand, since August 2019. But before that, it was one of the deadliest illicit substances in New Zealand in recent years. Police have stepped up their previous warnings to communities in the wake of the recent deaths of two men, aged 22 and 37, and a 26-year-old woman, all from West Auckland, who died in separate incidents. The majority of testing done by the Environmental Science and Research Crown Institute, ESR, has found the dangerous chemical AMB Fumidaka to be present the same chemical that was linked to a mass casualty event in Brooklyn in 2015 that left a number of drug users in a zombie-like state. Within the period of 2017 to 2019, there were estimated to be over 70 deaths in New Zealand linked to AMB Fubinaka alone, and this makes it the most deadly synthetic cannabinoid that New Zealand has ever seen to date. Regulations have meant that We're not seeing this number of mortalities anymore, which is fantastic. But whenever we regulate specific synthetic cannabinoids and broader classes of synthetic cannabinoids, the market's always going to shift, which is why we've had or seen so many different synthetic cannabinoid compounds, because every time one's regulated, they modify the structure to make a new one. What Lucy wants to find out is why AMB Fubinaka is so dangerous. The main concern with synthetic cannabinoids is the difference between the safety of them versus natural cannabis. So a lot of people regard cannabis as a relatively safe, illicit drug to take. That sounds like a strange term. But for the most part, it's not associated with respiratory depression that we see with opioids. If people overdose on cannabis most of the time, they'll probably throw up feel quite awful for a few hours but they're going to be okay and they don't need any sort of antidotes or anything like that. Synthetic cannabinoids are a whole lot more dangerous. We see a massive range of adverse effects from seizures, heart attacks, stroke, liver, kidney, lung damage as well as it's been associated with some respiratory depression and we really want to know whether all of these effects are on target so if they're being caused by activation of those cannabinoid receptors because for the most part we thought we understood how signalling with cannabinoids through the cannabinoid receptors affects the human body but these synthetics tend to be uh, so much stronger or more potent at activating the cannabinoid receptors that it's opened a whole new field of research really. Um, So the main concern is the safety and that we really don't understand why the synthetics are so dangerous or deadly compared to cannabis. So we start by really digging into 
every piece of information we can find on human cases that have involved synthetic cannabinoids. So we were really lucky to work with uh, Dr. Paul Morrow in Auckland, who's a pathologist, and he did a coronial case series on deaths in New Zealand that were all linked to AMB Fubinaca specifically. And that case series really informed a lot of my PhD. To do this, she has to break things down. Because even simple questions like, if a person takes a higher dose of AMB Fubinaca, will they have increased adverse effects? Are tricky to answer. Partly because of the way that synthetic cannabinoids are made and sold. It's kind of like what we would call bucket chemistry in a sense. But in this case, it's kind of cement mixer chemistry because they're literally making these compounds in cement mixes. They're not using the kind of analytical tools or the exact measurements that most actual chemists would employ. And they end up with a powder that's their synthetic cannabinoid. Whether they know exactly what they've modified or done to it is another thing entirely, but they end up with this powder. Then that powder can be um, exported, and when it reaches its destination, it's dissolved in a solvent, um, so something like acetone or methanol, something like that, and then sprayed onto a dried, inert plant sample. So if you thought of mixed herbs that you brought at the supermarket, it's not necessarily that, but something similar. And this is where it becomes something that resembles cannabis, in a sense. And again, this process isn't at all regulated or exact, so some parts of the plant material are going to have a whole lot more of the synthetic cannabinoid on it than other parts. And that ends up making a huge range of concentrations within a single batch of plant material, and then obviously between batches, so it becomes really, really hard to understand. When we see these cases of adverse effects, toxicity or even mortality in humans, whether that's linked to these wildly different concentrations of synthetic cannabinoids that these people are consuming, uh, or whether it's linked to something that's going on within them, so comorbidities or even um, multiple drugs, whether they're medications or other drugs of abuse. Uh, so there's a big a big puzzle <laughs> to fill in the pieces of uh, with the synthetic cannabinoids. And my project is trying to address kind of each of these parts as we go. So Lucy is going through these questions one by one. If you increase the amount of drug, do you get worse effects? Are the adverse effects all due to the potency? That is, the increased activation of the CB1 receptor. Or is it also activating some other pathway? How is the drug broken down in the body? And are there other drugs that might affect this? It's this last question that she's working on the day that I drop by. We head into the lab and she talks me through the experiment she's preparing. AMB Fubinaca is active at the CB1 receptor as it is. When it comes in contact with an enzyme in the body and gets broken down, it's no longer active. Um, so we're really interested in whether any drugs prolong its active state in the human body. And so what drug are you investigating now? At the moment I'm looking at seven different antipsychotics and these antipsychotics have all been relatively common in lots of the human case series and they're also um, the most common antipsychotics that are prescribed both in New Zealand and worldwide at the moment. So the question is if somebody 
is taking one of these antipsychotics and then they take A and B Fubinaca, does that mean that the A and B Fubinaca is going to stay around in their body for longer? Yeah, exactly. So Lucy is currently running an experiment in a dish in the lab where she looks to see if the activity of the enzyme is blocked when the antipsychotics are present. This assay works on a colour change that Lucy can detect using a plate reader, which spits out a bunch of numbers for her to analyse. As she said herself, it's a big puzzle to unravel, but Lucy is passionate and determined. She explains to me why she chose this PhD. When it comes to the synthetics, it's just such a huge research field at the moment that's continually growing, obviously. Um, hopefully, from this interview, we'll be aware of how broad the class of synthetic cannabinoids are and how rapidly evolving they are as a designer drug. We're only really scratching the surface for research and understanding the toxicity of these compounds. And then also the project is really New Zealand-specific, so knowing how, how serious of an impact A&B Fubinaka has had in New Zealand and all the steps we've done, obviously, to mitigate that, but we're in very much early days and we can do a whole lot more to to help cases of overdose with synthetic cannabinoids and even just on informing policy and border security and things like that on the safest way to deal with these compounds. Thanks to Lucy Thompson, PhD student in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Otago. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to William Ray for help with this episode. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Walken is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast platform. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for photos and links related to these stories, as well as access to the extensive back catalogue. And you can sign up to our monthly newsletter there. Did you know that RNZ has a whole website dedicated to Aotearoa audiobooks, stories and music for kids of all ages? Visit storytime.rnz.co.nz or find the podcast via the main RNZ website by searching for Best of Storytime. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.